Fi and retiring early seems like the ultimate option, but you have options along the way. And I think we get so laser focused on reaching Fi that we miss out on this like beautiful opportunity to learn about ourselves and craft, you know, what we want to do with our time along the way. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show. Today, we have on Diana, who is the founder of Economy. She has had quite the journey from going from being a super spender to cutting down to being a frugalite to quitting her job very recently. But before we get into the episode, let me check in with my co-host, Justin. What is going on, man? Hey, Cody. Uh had another one of those long journeys that I've been feel like I've been doing over the last year. Like I've been spending so much time in the car, but for a good reason this time, driving back to Mississippi, which is about an 11 hour drive from Austin. Luckily, I have some good friends in Dallas and was able to, to stop there, which kind of broke it up. You know, we drove the three hours up to Dallas, spent the night, came on to Mississippi, but my brother's getting married next weekend. So we'll be spending the week here in Mississippi working out out of here and also maybe doing another pizza event. We'll see. I started making some dough today, messed around and realized I didn't have enough flour to do a ton, but I'm not really advertising it, but I know that if I make them, I can sell them if I want to. So we'll see what happens. How about you, Cody? Well, excited to hear that you're maybe getting the pizza business up and running again. I know you had a ton of fun with that last time. And when I come down, I am definitely going to need to try one of your uni oven. What is it called? JT's Southern Slice? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) but i had a pretty eventful weekend there's been a heat wave probably not compared to austin texas up near boston here but it was like in the 90s all weekend so i ended up going up to the beach on sunday actually picked up lauren who just came back from a 10-day trip visiting her two of her girlfriends in la and seattle now it's still 90 out but back to the grind back to the work week and i'm actually going to be going to florida today the day this releases i'm going to be flying out tonight so Justin, that's enough about us and our lives. Let's take a quick moment for our partner. Keeping track of your net worth is one of the most important things you can do on your journey to financial independence. If you don't have an idea of what your net worth is, there's no way that you can keep your quote unquote score. One of our favorite tools to keep this score is called personal capital. If you haven't already started using it, it's an online software that basically compiles all of your data, it crunches all your assets, all your liabilities, and spits out a net worth number and allows you to track it day by day, month by month. Yeah, Cody, one of the big things that hold people back when they're doing activities like tracking their expenses or tracking their net worth is just they look at it as a big burden. And this allows you to go in with one username and one password and access as many financial accounts as you have. These can be loans, these can be 401ks, these can be HSAs, bank accounts, credit cards, They're all linked there. The other thing I really like about personal capital is it's very investing focused. So you can go in there and look at your allocation across your entire portfolio. So you don't just look at your allocation in one type of account, but your allocation as a person completely. And if you want to use the same tool that me and Cody use to track our net worth, which is completely free, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash PC. That's thefyshow.com slash PC. Well, Cody, this week we got another awesome guest in Diana. She had this cool story where, you know, she was in New York spending a ton of money and then she realized, hey, there's this other part of the country where it still gets these city vibes, but I can move there for a much lower cost of living. And then she just started shaving off all kinds of things like her spending in life. You know, she started having clothes swap parties. She started inviting people to her house to have dinner instead of going out to eat, which I've always been a big fan of because... 
you know, to me, when I look at going out to eat, what's the biggest part of it? It's really mostly about socializing with your friends. The next tier is like, okay, getting to try some good food. And then the third tier is maybe like having someone cook it for you. And so, I mean, you get to check all those boxes except for a little bit of the third one. Like maybe you make one dish, other people bring some stuff over, you're getting to socialize, you know, you're getting to have a good time, you're getting to try some new food that other people are cooking, and it's so much cheaper. So definitely a big fan of that. And then obviously, she starts the Economy Conference, and that's coming into its second year this year, and I know she's got a lot of big things coming. What do you think about the episode, Cody? Yeah, I totally agree with that, Justin. And one of the really powerful messages I think that came through in this episode was what Diana called flexibility. And basically, it's the notion that we've heard this time and time again from so many different guests that you don't have to hit your full phi number to go and build that dream life you love. Like she said, she was five or six years away from phi, but she found herself in a really toxic work environment. She was underpaid and she said, you know what? I don't need to do this anymore. You know, I'm going to go travel. She ended up walking the El Camino Trail, which is just this awesome, life-changing multi-hundred mile walking trail over in Europe. And yeah, now she's kind of just building the life that she wants. She says, you know, she's going just full tilt into this entrepreneurship thing with economy. She left her job earlier this year in January. She was making six figures. She was a marketer. She was talented, tons of experience in the space, but it just wasn't working out for her. So we talk a lot about that file flexibility. We talk a lot about lifestyle design, just building that life that you actually enjoy. And if you got as much out of this episode as Justin and I both did, you can check out all the show notes. You can contact Diana. You can check out the Economy Conference. And at the end of the episode, but I'm going to give you a little spoiler here. She does give five show listeners an exclusive 10% discount code. So if you do sign up and you want to go to the Economy Conference after hearing this episode, or you just want to hang out with me and a bunch of other cool people, uh, type in FISHOW, that's in all caps, F-I-S-H-O-W at checkout, and you'll get 10% off your ticket. And all of that stuff that I just mentioned will be available at thefyshow.com slash Diana. Now that's spelled a little bit different. It's D-I-A-N-I-A. That's thefyshow.com slash Diana, D-I-A-N-I-A. Well, I like to say that when I discovered the Mr. Money Mustache blog, it was like a refreshing punch in the face, honestly, (laughs) because I was in my late 20s and I was very mindless about money throughout my 20s. I was living in New York City. I was definitely living beyond my means. And it was just one of those things like I'm sure a lot of people have this attitude, especially when you're in your 20s, which I'm so proud of you, Cody, for not being this way. (laughs) But, you know, you just think, oh, I'm going to be making millions one day. I'm going to figure this out later. Like I knew I had some debt, but I didn't even know how much total debt I had. And it was just one of those things where like, I'm going to figure it out later. I had no sense of urgency. And then when I found the Mr. Money Mustache blog, he talked about money in a way that I'd never heard anyone talk about money before. And it really kind of helped me realize how much I was wasting my privilege, frankly, because I was mindlessly spending money and not recognizing that money could either buy me stuff or going out drinking with my friends or whatever I was wasting it on, or it could buy me time and freedom and options. And once I was able to kind of make that distinction and flip that script, it became a lot easier for me to prioritize like saving and investing. And at the time, get out of the 30 grand of debt that I had, I actually ran a a credit report on myself to see my debt collectively. And I was like, oh, wow, okay, 30 grand. Now I know. (laughs) So just to get like a little bit more background on where you were at when you started making these moves, started learning these things, 
You said you're in New York City. Is that somewhere you grew up or is that, you know, I guess, how'd you end up there? Because I know it just in of itself, no matter, you know, how you feel about finances, like it's got to be tough in New York City to, to really make a lot of progress towards buy. Sure. So I grew up in New Jersey. I like to say fist pumping country on the Jersey Shore. And everything about the show is true. And so, you know, I, I went to Montclair State, State University in New Jersey. It's like 13 miles outside of New York City. And so ever since I was a kid, I always thought I was going to work in New York City. And so I ended up moving there, you know, right after college and really starting my career. So I lived in New York close to 10 years. And I really, I started out on like the Hoboken side on the Jersey side. And then I ended up living all over Brooklyn. So it was the fall of 2015. I believe I was 28. Apparently, when you get in your 30s, you just forget how old you are. (laughs) But I, I believe I was 28 in the fall of 2015 when I discovered Mr. Money Mustache and decided I need to figure this out, especially because like the 30th birthday was looming, you know, and I just think 30 is one of those big reflective birthdays where you're like, okay, what the hell am I doing with my life? Like you just kind of pause for a minute. And so that felt like it was right around the corner. And I had this crazy goal that I wanted to go walk the Camino for my 30th birthday. And the Camino de Santiago, it's a 500 mile trek across Spain. It intimidated the hell out of me. And I just, I didn't know how I was going to make it happen, but I knew that I was going to need to get out of debt and save some money if I was going to make that trip happen. So that was part of of the inspiration for it was maybe a very early midlife crisis, I guess you could say. So as you're making these changes, you're almost 30 years old. It sounds like you are partying it up, having a good time in NYC, going out drinking with friends, doing all the stuff, all the stuff that's fun that you spend money on in your 20s. When you started to make that transition, how did your personal life look like? Like, Were you you just cutting all those fun people out, nose to the grindstone, never going out? Or was there a hybrid model? How did it kind of affect you mentally, I guess? Yeah. So I think the key is when you're making big changes in your life and you're really changing habits. I mean, what I've learned about money is it's just like a collection of small habits, right? And mindset stuff. And so I would say that I wouldn't like completely cut things out. I looked at replacing things. I looked at how do I get my needs met in a more resourceful way? So like, for example, where I was spending most of my money was like going out and drinking with my friends, big party animal in my twenties. I don't regret it, but you know, that's what it was. And so I didn't want to completely cut that out, but I didn't want to be spending so much money. And so I ended up making my apartment like more fun than a bar. And I would host these like elaborate dinner parties where I figured out how to feed like eight people on $30 and everybody else would bring the booze and I would invent these like games and I would make it really fun and creative. So like I remember this one time I told people to bring a photo from their awkward phase and we like passed these photos around and like had a lot of fun with it. To me, it felt like this period of a lot of creativity and resourcefulness. And what I got out of that is it was actually, I made it more fun than the convenience of going out to a bar. And also it was more convenient because people were coming to me. You know, the the other example that I like to give is I stopped buying clothing, but I would host these clothing exchanges. So all of my more fashionable friends would clear out their closets, bring all their clothes to my house, and we would swap. 
and we drink mimosas on a Sunday afternoon listening to music, like that was actually a lot more fun to me than online shopping. And I got, you know, a full closet of free clothes from friends who were much more fashionable than me. So it's not just that I was saving money. I feel like the creative aspect of it made those things far superior than my old habits. I definitely love the way you're talking about it there, because I think a lot of times people look at, you know, the things that people like us do and you automatically think, oh, well, the man, that life just must be terrible. It must be just a lot of, you know, giving up things. And when you can two things, A, like you said, you made it more fun and B, you made it a game. So, you, you know, you weren't dreading it. It's like the challenge of figuring out a better way of doing something. So I think that was really awesome. Um, but I'm curious, like, was there one thing where you were looking at it and you're like, you know, like, this is probably excessive. Like, I'm probably spending more on this than, you know, maybe the FI police would, would like for me to, but I just can't give this up. Ooh. At the time that I was getting out of debt. So I got out of 30 grand of debt in 11 months. So during that time, I feel like I was pretty extreme. Since that time, I feel like I've relaxed a bit. To me, it's, it's all about experimentation. And I really had this awareness that I wanted to impose restriction on myself and experiment with it while it was optional versus having something happen, like I lost my job or something like that, and having an external force impose on me the need to be frugal. I wanted to like learn it on my own terms. So everything became an experiment. And, you know, sometimes you experiment and it simply goes too far. So like for a while, I was making my own laundry detergent and it was super cheap. It was like $10 a year I was spending on it. And I did this for a number of years, but after a while, I'm like, you know, I kind of miss the smell of my favorite laundry detergent. And I feel like this cleans my clothes, but it doesn't clean it as well as like the store-bought stuff. So like, fine, now I buy laundry detergent. You know, it's like the experimentation part of it. There are no rules here. There's no fire police, <laughs> despite what people believe. Like I used to think that like Mr. Money Mustache was looking over my shoulder and if I spent money unnecessarily, you know, someone was gonna yell at me, but that's not the case. Like you are the captain of your own ship. And you get to decide where is it worth it to cut back and where is it really not worth it? Just to fill in a little bit of your story to make it more relatable, if you don't mind sharing, at the time you pay off 30 grand in 11 months. Like that's a that's a good chunk of money because it sounds like you were in the red before that. So that is like a multi $10,000 shift. What was your job at the time and around how much were you making? Yeah. So I built my career in brand extension and licensing. So if you think about products like Welch's Fruit Snacks, it's a licensed product where Welch's collects a royalty for this other company to basically produce that product and use their name. And so I worked at an agency for most of my career negotiating those kind of deals and setting up those partnerships. At the time, I believe when I started my journey, I was making 80 grand. And I believe I got a raise in the time that I was getting out of debt. Because when I was calculating, I used a debt reduction calculator. I thought it was gonna take me, I think like two years. And I just got more and more aggressive as like I got a raise or I got, I, you know, I got a windfall of something. Like I would just throw it at the debt as aggressive as I could. When you were paying that debt off, were you also 
you know, investing and putting towards retirement? And if you were, I'd just be curious to hear about, you know, like if you didn't have a background in it, you didn't come from a lot of experience in investing, like those maybe tips for listeners on what you did to get over that hump of being intimidated. Because I know a lot of times, uh, you know, maybe paying off debt, it makes sense. And it's, I wouldn't say it's easy to do, but it's easy to get your head wrapped around. Then the investing part, things get so much more complicated. You are so right about that, Justin. Investing totally intimidated me. And I enjoyed the process of getting out of debt because it was it was relatively easy to figure out, right? And then I started reading books about investing and that that was tough for me. I will say that during the period that I was getting out of debt, and I do not recommend this for other people, but I did stop contributing to my 401k during that time. Through my 20s, I always contributed enough just to get the match. But because I was like, I felt this urgency that my hair was on fire and I really wanted to get out of debt, I was also uncomfortable with not contributing to my 401k. But I think I probably had some remnants of I'll figure it out later (laughs) during this time too. And so I stopped contributing for a short period of time, but it did lead me to be more aggressive, you know, about getting out of the debt. And I made up for it so much more afterwards because then I started fully funding my retirement vehicles. And what's crazy to me is that like less than 10% of people do this. Even people making really good six-figure salaries, less than 10% will put $19,500 into a 401k. And then I did 6,000 into a Roth and 3,500 into an HSA. So for like four years in a row, I fully funded retirement vehicles. And that's kind of what brought me to my financial position today. And the thing that made me comfortable with that is The Simple Path to Wealth by J.L. Collins. It's the first book that I read that made me feel like, oh, I got this. Like, I can do this. Every other book I read before that, it's like no matter how much I read about investing, it just felt like a foreign language. And it was it was too intimidating for me. And still to this day, it's probably the topic that I'm the least confident about, even though I'm in this space. But I think it just goes to show like you don't need to know everything about investing to be successful at investing. I still learn every day. I'm getting better at it every day. And you can really have a simple strategy and not overcomplicate it and still reach your financial goals. And whatever I'm missing out on by not optimizing my investments, I'm making up for it with a high savings rate. So that brings me some comfort. Couldn't agree more about Simple Path to Wealth. I think it's just such a fantastic tool. And there are other great books out there to kind of give you the confidence to start investing. I'm curious. So it's around 2017. I'm trying to follow the timeline when you get out of debt, or at least you're like coming out of debt, starting to invest in all these retirement vehicles, maxing them out. What do the next couple of years look like? Because I know if you were like me or Justin, you probably just got obsessive and every single penny you were saving went into some sort of investment that was going to make you money in the future. You know, were you living in the same place? Did your savings rate increase by a ton? Did you pick up side hustles? What did the kind of next few years of the journey look like? We'll be right back after a quick word from one of our sponsors. Today's sponsor is one I use on a daily basis in my company, Gold City Ventures. That is the sound of a sale in your Shopify store. But did you know that Shopify now also powers in-person selling? Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store or small business. Accept payments, manage inventory, they have everything. Shopify brings together your in-person and online sales business into one source of truth, one dashboard, everything in one place. You know exactly what's going on. And now they have all these customization options. They have plug and play tools you can integrate with Instagram or TikTok or wherever. 
You can take your payments by phone or by tablet. Shopify makes it easy. Plus, if you have any questions, their support team is there to help you. I know we have a lot of entrepreneurs in this audience, and Shopify POS just breaks down that barrier to accepting payments with your business. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash fyshow, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash fyshow to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash fyshow. Now back to the show. So I started my journey in 2015. I got out of debt in August of 2016. And if you're interested, there's actually a video of me the day I got out of debt. It's called How to Get a Shit-Eating Grin in One Easy Step. And it's on YouTube. (laughs) You can Google that. And it's like the day I got out of debt. I have like crazy eyes. I look insane, but it's kind of funny. So from there, I really shifted focus to I knew I wanted to walk the Camino. So maxing, like fully funding retirement vehicles was definitely a focus, but then it was like saving money to go walk the Camino really was, was a definite focus. And before I walked the Camino, I had convinced my employer to allow me to move to Cincinnati from New York city. So I went from super high cost of living. I was paying $1,800 a month for like a cockroach infested apartment in the bowels of Brooklyn to Cincinnati, where I was like in the most expensive area and I was paying like $900 for my rent when I first moved here. So I cut that in half. That was incredible. I did have to buy a car, but of course I buy a $6,000 used car. And then I ended up buying a house later. So my mortgage now is $600 a month, which is just insane to me from spending so much time in New York City. I'll say this. After I got a debt, I started throwing it all at savings and investing. And my savings rate was about 60% of my income. I maintained that savings rate even though I moved to a lower cost of living. I could have increased it, but I feel like I relaxed a little bit because what I realized was that the intensity that I had in getting out of debt was not sustainable for my whole FI journey. And I've been on track I've made some changes recently in my income, but I was on track to reach five by 40. Maybe I'll still make it. Maybe I won't. Time will tell. But I just realized that it was really fun for that period of time. And I I learned about myself and I learned what level of frugality is sustainable for me. So I feel like I kind of took my foot off the gas a little bit. But still, a 60% savings rate is still awesome, right? So even though I took the gas off, like, let's be clear, guys. (laughs) And so, yeah, I, I would say that from there, I moved to Cincinnati. I walked the Camino, which, again, is another not very, I guess you could say, five friendly thing to do because I spent six or $7,000 over two months on that trip. Plus, I gave up the income that I would have had during those two months. However, it was an incredible life experience that like I do not regret at all. I think it's all about finding that balance of living for today, but also saving for your future. And then when I got back from the Camino, I bought a house, I adopted a dog, I found myself a Midwestern gentleman, like things are looking good, right? Like I'm settling into this Midwest living. And, you know, I think this whole experience, there was just so much change and so much excitement. And I was learning so much that I just kept asking myself, what's next? What's next? What's next? And then I kind of pushed myself to create the economy conference. And that's been, and that's been really a focus that I, that I've had since, since getting back from the Camino. 
So since you've referenced the the Camino trip a few times, before we jump into the conference and all those awesome things, for listeners out there, this is a definite destination I haven't heard much about. Can you tell us a little bit about that trip and you know what it entailed and also like how you got two months to go and do it? So I'll start with how I got two months. I think that I asked at a really key time because we had just closed the fiscal year. I'm a salesperson. I had like doubled my sales from the year before. Like I, I had a lot of leverage to ask for what I wanted. And they had been giving me good raises before that. So I just thought like, what is more valuable than more money would be more time and freedom. That's why we all want more money. So, so I can actually have that now. And, you know, I said to them, look, if I was going to have a child, I'd be taking a three month maternity leave, but I don't want to birth a human. I want to birth a world adventure and I'm only asking for two months off. So you're actually getting a really good deal. (laughs) Could you tell I'm a salesperson? And so I think because I was such, I was so good at what I did, I had the leverage to make that kind of ask. And it wasn't like I wanted to leave. I was happy with with my job. And I think I really had the benefit of, you know, at the time that boss that allowed me to do this, like she really fought for it. It was a very unconventional ask. I had no examples of anyone ever asking for a sabbatical and or getting it. So, you know, she really went to bat for me because she believed that I was going to come back a better person. And I think I was really fortunate in that regard. Can you talk a bit about you kind of been dancing around this idea? And I know this is something that I did want to talk to you about today. And this is Phi Lexibility. And you had mentioned like you're taking these breaks, you could hit Phi by this certain date. And you know, you could get it by 37, 38. I know you mentioned 40, whatever that goal is for you, but you're being Phi Lexible about it. What does that mean to you? And can you share that with the listeners? Sure. I think it's about prioritizing the journey over the destination. And recognizing that like things change and stuff happens and life throws you obstacles, but it also throws you a lot of opportunities. So like when you're coming up with your plan to reach Phi and you say, I'm going to reach Phi in 10 years based on these assumptions and here's what I'm going to want to do and here's what I'm working towards. Well, what if your motivations change during that time? You know, I think that I've had a long line of like trying stuff and realizing that maybe I'm not the best at knowing what I really want. And so I didn't want to like get myself to a place where, you know, I reached this goal and I'm still not where I want to be because I didn't like take the the initiative to learn about myself along the way. So I think being phi flexible is like I'm not giving up on the goal. I'm still pursuing phi. But I'm not being as aggressive about it. I get emails all the time from people who are like, I'm two years away from five, but I hate my job. And I'm like, then just quit. You are in the financial position to quit. If you're that close to five, I was six years away from five and I just quit my job, right? It's not that I, I'm not five, so I still have to work, but I no longer have to work someplace that I don't want to, right? It's, it's like your options Fi and retiring early seems like the ultimate option, but you have options along the way. And I think we get so laser focused on reaching Fi that we miss out on this like beautiful opportunity to learn about ourselves and craft, you know, what we want to do with our time along the way. 
So since you have this mindset of the flexibility, the knowing that things are not really always predictable, does that mean that when you're projecting going into retirement, you're going to go maybe way past that 4% rule because you do have concerns about maybe the future will throw something at you you're not ready for? Maybe. I mean, again, I'm pretty far from reaching my fine number and maybe that fine number changes, right? Based on what pops up along the way. So I think what's been helpful for me is having a mindset of like focusing on where I'm at and not worrying about the next step. So example, when I was getting out of debt, I didn't worry about investing because I just needed to focus on like where I was. I was just in that getting out of debt stage. And now I'm in the accumulation phase and I'm just focused on the accumulation phase. It's hard to answer that question because I don't know where I'm going to be when I decide to come up with a drawdown strategy. Something I don't want to glaze over and you just kind of mentioned it in passing was like a one liner was and then I quit my job. Where did the confidence (laughs) to quit your job come from? Were your side hustles making you money at this point? I definitely want to talk about those. But I first just want to preface it with, I mean, quitting your job is kind of a big thing if there's not something else going on there. Yeah. So I decided to quit my job in January of this year because it became really clear to me that my employer no longer valued me. I got a new boss about a year ago. And obviously getting a new boss, the dynamic changes. It was almost like they treated me so well for so long that the party was just over by the time I got this new boss. And it just became very clear, you know, I was the only woman on my team. I was no nowhere near the lowest performer. And yet I was the lowest paid person on my team. And I was I felt that I was being held to a much higher standard than my male colleagues. So I decided to leave on principle. And it's such a tough thing to talk about because, you know, I am accusing them of discrimination. I wrote a very long letter explaining that to them. And I think that when I was looking at my finances, in theory, I could have stayed and kept my head down and stayed until FI because it was a solid income, even though I was underpaid. But when I looked at the fact that I've already hit Coast FI and I have two years of living expenses, liquid and accessible, it just felt like I had the ability to leave on principle. And because of that, I needed to go. And when I talked to other people in the same situation as me, that weren't able to leave because they were paycheck to paycheck or their finances didn't allow them to. It just it just felt like the right thing to do. And it allowed me to kind of take a big bet on myself because if I'm not worried about, let's just say I'm not worried about reaching Phi Young by 40 like I was, I really just have to cover my monthly expenses until traditional retirement since I'm Coast Phi. And so can I make that work? Like, can I can I get the autonomy that I'm looking for in early retirement without actually retiring early? And so that's kind of what I'm experimenting now. I don't know. Maybe I'm totally wrong. Maybe this will be a failed experiment and I'll blow through a year of expenses and have to get another job. But I feel like it's it's worth trying and taking the chance. One thing I don't think we've got to talk to guests much about is, you know, the issue you find yourself in where the pay discrepancy, you know, the only female getting paid less for anybody listening out there. Do you have tips for a like how you found out that you were not getting paid as much and then maybe b anything you know you could do about it? 
Well, as much as employers don't want you to talk about what you're paid, like people just do, or like a disgruntled assistant will leave and tell them, tell you what they know. You know, it's just people talk as much as employers don't want you to. So I also, when I was going through this conversation of asking for a raise and trying to correct the discrepancy, I went to six of my main competitors and I basically showed them like, here's what I've done from a sales perspective. Here's what I've contributed. You know, here's my level of experience, basically just kind of like a quick resume snapshot of my performance. I'm not asking you for a job, but if you were going to hire someone at my level, what would you expect my pay is? Because I just didn't know, like, what is my market rate? I have no idea. Right. And so it was all the answers that I got was a lot more than what I was making. (laughs) So, I mean, I went back to my employer and I showed them all of that. I made the case for my contributions to the company. I made the case for what I found out from my own research from our competitors. And I was basically told that it wasn't a good enough case and I was offered no raise. And so I said, okay, I quit. Well, good on you for even bringing that up. I feel like 99% of people wouldn't go out, do that due diligence, talk to other companies, find their market rate, ask for the market rate. So, you know, good on you for leaving on principle. That boss is missing a good employee. He's missing a good saleswoman. But one thing I definitely want to start talking about now because we're pretty deep into the episode now, economy. Who, what, when, where, why? So economy was born from me asking myself, what would I do with my time if I didn't have to work for money? Because even if if you retire at 30 or you retire at 65, please don't sit around and do nothing, right? You've got to do something. And so I look at FIRE as like this separation of your finances from your work. I don't think it necessarily means that you stop working. I just think that you're not dependent on that work for your livelihood. And so I thought, well, what would I want to do with my time? And one thing I really enjoy doing is going to events and connecting with other people. And I noticed that, you know, there is an amazing online community for people pursuing fire. And I'm just not, I've never been one to really interact much online. It's just not the way that I enjoy interacting with people. Like I enjoy this. I enjoy conversations. I'm much more of a talker than I am a typer, I guess you could say. And the five events that I've gone to have been amazing. So there's this one event called World Domination Summit that Mr. Money Mustache spoke at one year. And I went to it like for three or four years after that. And every time I would go, I would leave feeling like my life was so full of possibility. And it's because I was surrounding myself with people that were living really unconventional lives. And just the energy of those people, even though it sounds probably like kind of woo-woo, but it's just the energy of people doing really amazing things. It's like I would ride that wave for a while afterwards. And I wanted to create something that would make people feel that feeling about their money. Because for me, getting my money in order completely changed my life and like opened up endless opportunities for me. And I wanted other people to get as excited about it. And so I created this, what some people call party about money. 
And it's very much modeled after a World Domination Summit. It is a high production value event meant for a large audience, which most of the FI events, like I love Camp FI, I love Camp Mustache, they're meant for a more intimate group of like 60 people over a weekend. This event is designed for 700 people. And when you have that big of a crowd and that big of a budget, it's a very high budget event too you can just do amazing things. I mean, I had a lighting designer and a music designer and like we had this crazy after party with a band and it's just a fun, fun event. And I think when it comes to pursuing FI, it can be a long, lonely road for a lot of people. And I really do believe that community makes it such a more enjoyable process. My best friends today are people that I met through creating economy and from going to like Camp Fi and Fi events. You know, you are the product of the five people that you surround yourself with. And I love this quote that I heard the other day where if you look at your inner circle and you're not inspired, then you don't have a circle, you have a cage. Like get out of your cage and come to economy and come meet your people. You know, like that's that's what I'm I'm really looking to create. And so we have this event where yes, we have main stage speakers and the speakers are amazing. But if you're only interested in seeing the speakers, I got you. I will give that to you for free. Go to my YouTube channel. You can see all the speeches for free. You come for the community. You come for the people, the other people in the room. And we do breakout sessions so that you can learn from the other attendees as much as you're learning from the people on stage. We have activities like an urban hike around Cincinnati and a brewery tour so that you can get to know the lowest cost of living metro area in the country. Cincinnati is amazing. I think it's the perfect place to pursue FI. So yeah, I, I feel like I'm rambling on here, but to me, it's like I created what I wanted to see in the world for myself. And I'm just inviting everybody to join me. No, I'm glad you went on. You went into a lot of the detail about what what the economy is, like kind of the, some of the things that you feel like make it different. Like what's the differentiator? That's what I was hoping we'd get into. How long is it? And I know you mentioned it's 700 people. Is that something kind of like you feel like that's a sweet spot or are you open to it growing even further? Yeah, that's my capacity. We had 250 people last year. And I would say that yeah, the capacity for the venue is 700 people. If it grows over time, you know, we'll have to find a different venue. And I do see this as something that can like maybe travel around to different universities. I do it at the University of Cincinnati. I love the idea of doing it on a college campus. I do a lot of guest lecturing and try to get students to come and that kind of thing. But I do think 700 people is a good sweet spot because sometimes like if you have 2000 people, it's overwhelming and it's too much. With 700, there's still an opportunity to have some like, you know, it could be more intimate. So yeah, as far as the length of the event, the main the main event is on Saturday. And this is happening November 13th and 14th. So on Saturday is the main event where you're going to have the main stage speakers. You're going to have breakout sessions. The after party is that evening. On Sunday is what I like to call post-event activities. And that's when we keep the party going, where it's mainly like social gatherings. So you're going to do the urban hike around Cincinnati. You're going to do the brewery tour. We're looking at doing like an excursion to a farm where we might do a cooking class. Like all of that kind of stuff is just kind of much more spending more time with each other. We do have an addition to our programming this year where on Friday night, 
we're going to do a live recording of the Stacking Benjamin show. So Joe Salcihai is one of our speakers. The venue is to be determined, but we're looking for like a comedy club where we can we can do that live recording. So there's some additional things like that happening, but I would say the main event is like a full day on Saturday. Well, my mom and I will be there because I asked her what she wanted for her birthday and she said she wanted me to go to economy with her. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> it makes a great birthday gift. <laughs> for someone who's never put on an event like this, I have to imagine there is a huge learning experience. There were some things that you weren't you know, necessarily looking out for. What's like the one light item where you're like, man, I cannot believe it costs that much for this. Like, I can't believe I'm spending mm. this much on this line item. Yeah, like I think my original budget for the event was like 20 grand and it ended up being 60. Man, there were just so many unexpected costs that popped up. Or like I got a quote from a videographer who ended up, you know, jumping ship and I needed to find someone else. Or, you know, I didn't realize that I was going to need a lighting designer because the lighting in there wouldn't be sufficient or I didn't realize like, oh, how are you going to dress the room? I didn't want to like buy a bunch of crap to dress the room and like make it feel, give it the vibe that I was looking for. So I ended up investing in, it's basically, it projects my logo onto the wall and it gives the the whole room a certain vibe because it's like colored. And that enabled me to like not have to worry about like how I'm going to decorate the room because that was basically like the decoration were these light projections that I bought. But that was an investment. I mean, I can use them for years to come, but I didn't anticipate those little things going in. So moral of the story, everyone, you can meet me, my mom, and a ton of other awesome financial independence folks at Economy. Get there, get your tickets. Or if you can't make it, if you don't feel comfortable, I know some people might not. You said they're going to be on YouTube. If you're, if you don't want the camaraderie, if you just want the, you know, high impact conversations, Diana, if people are interested in connecting with you, getting tickets to economy, where are the best places to do that? Yeah. So if you go to economyconference.com and remember that economy is spelled with an M E, not an M Y, because I'm so clever. And apparently I appreciate misspelled words. If you look at my name, the spelling of my name. So yeah, economyconference.com. You can read about all the speakers. You can check out like the schedule. There is a frequently asked questions page and listeners of this show can get a 10% discount on tickets with the promo code FI show. And that's in all caps. Well, Diana, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been a good conversation. Um, you've shown like a lot of guts through a lot of these different parts of your life. So it's very interesting to hear your story. So thanks for coming on. Well, thanks for having me. And as always, if you want to check out our Facebook group page, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash community. And we always appreciate those five-star reviews. They help us get great guests like we had today. And if you're interested in supporting The Fi Show, you can do so by checking out some of our partners over at the resources page, which can be found at thefyshow.com slash resources. And thanks for listening. Hey, real quick, before you go, I just want to remind you that I have made my personal like budget and net worth tracking spreadsheet available, the very same one that I use to track my net worth from $38,000 to over $1.2 million, available for free on our website at thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet. So you can go download that today. That's thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet.